Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson, I'm the editor of Squiggly Magazine and I'm joined as ever by Ben Mitchell. I'm Ben Mitchell, I write features, I produce the podcast and stare into middle distance on my own for the rest of the time. If you're listening to this on the uh, on the website squiggly.co.uk, uh, we are now on iTunes, which is good news for everyone who likes to subscribe to things and get their podcasts sent to them directly. It's nice to belong. You know, I, I think any podcast only really becomes a proper podcast if it's on iTunes. I don't feel like we're um, playing podcasts anymore. We've got like a big a stamp, a seal of approval. Yeah. Anything I think with a with a small I before it. Just makes you cooler yeah. if, you're, if you're part of that culture. So go on to iTunes, Squiggly Animation Podcast, subscribe, share. Uh, what else is it that people do? Well, they give, us, give us some stars. Listen to it if you like. <laughs> yeah, listen to it as well if you want. And spread the love. Yeah, validate us. <laughs> this all has to be leading towards something. So, Hey, Steve. Hey, Ben. What have we got today on this month's podcast? We've got the rest of the John Christopher Lucy interview. Also on this month's podcast, we're back to our in-between segment ramblings. We talk a bit about our previous versus challenge and also our previous competition. You can find out the winner. We've also got an interview with a producer. So if you ever wondered what a producer does, you're going to find out. An interview with Richard Randolph of Comics Entertainment with a new show coming out, which he did with McKinnon and Saunders. So we'll talk a little bit about that later on. Also a chat with Neil Boyle, the right-hand man to Richard Williams for many years, on his latest short, The Last Bell. All that and more. More being us rambling. Yes, in an inimitable fashion. So those of you with a keen ear would have realised that the last podcast was something of a, a bumper interview special. Uh, which went down extremely well. It was an interview smorgasbord. Mm. I liked it. I like not having to hear my voice so much. I enjoyed that bit the most, uh, but I'll insert my voice. It was so uh, interview inundated that we actually have some runoff, some more from Mr. John Creese for Lucy. It was uh, you know quite a lot that we got through um, in the first part of the interview. A lot about his new film, The Cans of That Labels Project. It's a uh, Kickstarter-funded endeavor. It's done very well. I mean, in between this podcast and the last podcast, it not only uh, reached its goal, it exceeded it quite significantly. So uh, he's not only going to be producing this film, he's going to be doing some extras and putting the money to good use and uh, employing some young protégés to have their minds sullied by his Chris Felusian ways, uh, which I'm rather envious of. I'm looking forward to it. I like uh, he's He's a divisive guy as far as the, the work he does, but uh, I'm on the I love Marmite side of the equation. Anyway, yeah, you know. very, uh, me, me too, very much so. The, the best thing about the Kickstarter uh, campaign is not only when somebody like, like John Kay, when he turns up and he offers to make a film and you get to be a producer, you know, he's a guy who's, who's struggled in the past against people trying to shape his own creations, and this mm. is the fans funding it. And also the fans get some great kickbacks as well if they fund things such as this drawings and you know original drawings I mean when when can you get an opportunity to get hold of something like that unless you go and meet him in person with this you can fund his film you get an original drawing or you get one of his 
uh, vinyl dolls or you know one of the uh, there's, a, there's plenty on offer. It's a plethora of cartoony goodness. Yeah, it's I think what's the kind of thing that really makes or breaks these types of campaigns is when anyone is trying to raise funds. And I've, I've donated to a couple of these in the past. Some of them are, are like you know famous people or you know the animation version of famous. Some of them have just been friends of mine. Um, but what I think determines whether or not it's it's going to work is what really is the the audience going to get out of it and you know firstly you really need to sort of have a film that gets interest that gets people excited which i think this film did um but also yeah these incentives are, are great it's like well it's it's rare stuff that people you know might otherwise be scouring ebay for for you know uh, uh, months on end and then oh wait you can actually just get it from the source and you know it's going to contribute to uh to to culture mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm a, I'm a big Spumco fanboy, and so I, I, you know, I, I threw a few shekels his way. Exciting that this is the way things are going. He did talk a bit about the uh, nature of this type of audience and creator relationship and, and the direction it's going. I think it's a good thing for the most part. There is a danger, perhaps, of your Nedda's cast to a, a pre-existing audience how impartial that audience is going to be about the quality of the product. But then I think we live in a world where because of the internet, because people can be anonymous, the people who are going to be the most sort of critical of what you do are the people who are already your fans. You know, like people who would kind of have a nonchalant attitude toward your work are just not going to say anything. So you you would get both sides of the feedback. You know, you'd get the people saying, oh, I love this. This part's really funny. This, oh, this looks great. Then you get maybe people saying, oh, maybe, you know, this, this, is a little repetitive or blah de blah de blah. So it's a great way of, of just being like, okay, no agenda, no people trying to kiss your ass, no networks giving you the glad hand and then kind of stabbing you in the back. Just create an audience and you know have that communication exist in a very organic way. I think there have been responses to his work and, and similar, you know, animators' work, people like, you know, Plimpton. Um, who was obviously very different style-wise, but in terms of attitude, not that different. You know, it's a guy motivated by creating entertaining cartoons for people and doing it in a, in a way that, you know, engages with the audience directly. Both, I think, are no stranger to having a product not necessarily be embraced by the audience. Mm. And this process, this newer process, it expedites, I think, the trial and error of giving the audience what they want. You don't have to finish the product before the audience tells you they don't like it, you know, or before the audience tells you they think it's the best thing they've ever seen. You know, it goes both ways. So yeah, I think more positives than anything else out of, you know, these types of campaigns. Hopefully hopefully see more then from uh, for the future of independent animators. I would like to see more. What else did uh, you and John talk about in the interview? Well, now that the deadline for the Kickstarter campaign has come and gone, what's sort of left of our interview is more sort of general industry talk, some of his uh, more recent projects, some of his old stuff for Adult Swim. And um, we'll start with a delightful, heartwarming tale of... Uh, how he inherited Bob Clampett's hormones, amongst other things. Right. Yeah. So uh, it all will become clear. So here's John Chris for Lucy, part two. By the way, this is Bob Clampett's chair. Really? Yeah. Wow. This is farted in this. That's uh, quite the souvenir. Yeah. <laughs> how did you get that? Well, when I first came to Hollywood, I wanted to come down to Hollywood. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a Hollywood animator like Chuck Jones and Tex Avery and Walt Disney and all the heroes, right? So I, I couldn't wait to get to Hollywood. So I'm going to Sheridan College and the Christmas break is coming up. And so I got a couple of friends together and, and we all said, hey, let's go down to uh, Hollywood and 
check out the studios and we'll call up some of our heroes. A lot of them were still alive back then. I got Bob Hammett's phone number from, uh, from my instructor. So as soon as we got off the plane and in the car, we were driving through Venice and I saw a phone booth and I just jumped out and I grabbed the phone and I was all nervous and I, and I dialed Clampett's number and uh, I'm waiting, ring, ring, all of a sudden somebody picks up and this booming, deep, manly voice, hello, answers the phone and I said, is this the genius? <laughs> and he starts laughing on the other line. He said, who's this? And I said, well, my name's John, you don't know me, but I'm your biggest fan in the world, Bob Clampett, you're my hero. Oh my God, they did the wildest, most inventive cartoons ever. Hmm. So he was, he loved us, he was eating us up. So he invited me to come and visit him at his studio. He had a studio on Seward Street uh, where he produced the, the Beanie and Cecil show in the 60s. So uh, we set up the appointment, I went down there, maybe a Tuesday or something like that. I'm so excited. And when I walked in, I, John, I'm, uh, I'm Bob's wife, Sody Clampett. And uh, she apologized because Bob couldn't make it that day because he was sick. But she said, well, come on in. I'm going to give you the tour of the whole place. And then you can sit down and Bob's going to call. And you can talk to him as long as you want. Ask him anything you want. And then when he's feeling better, we'll set up another. Hmm. I was a little bit disappointed, but it was in all of the office, right? He had all these cool toys everywhere and stuff. Uh, he had all these uh, cells from his cartoons. He had these giant sculptures, Porky Pig, Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny from about 1940, the vintage uh, Looney Tunes character, just beautiful. He had a huge drawing that he did of, uh, of Tweety Bird mm -hmm. back in the 40s. It's a little painting, watercolor painting, it was great. But the thing that I was most interested in is I, I saw his desk, right? And there was a chair, an empty chair behind it. And I looked at Sony and I said, is that where the genius sits? She, she was laughing too, right? Because I was a complete dumbstruck nerd fan, right? Like, oh, couldn't believe what I was looking at. Oh, by the way, this was also, I had to walk past Klasky and Chupo. Okay. And, uh, and uh, Gabor, who were sitting there, and they were, they were the same age as me, and they were just starting out. They had a little studio that were doing commercials and things, and, you know, they were renting space in Bob's office. And I, I didn't know who they were or anything, but I met them. And it was just a weird coincidence that nine years later, both of us had a show on Nickelodeon at the same time. So anyways, I, I look at the desk and uh, I see the chair. I said, well, when he calls, can I sit in the genius chair? <laughs> and she thought that was great. So, you know, she sits me down and I'm sitting, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, man, this chair. Got Bob's farts in it. That means some of his hormones might have leaked through. Maybe they'll seep through my genes, and I'll get some of his, you know, his genius genetic material. So I'm sitting there, and Bob calls up. I'm sitting in the genius chair, and everything. And I got to talk to him for about an hour and a half, or or something like that. And we became great friends like, instantly. So I had to go back to Sheridan, all said. And when I finally came down to LA and moved moved here. Then we became pals and we hung out and did all kinds of crazy stuff together. Cool. Bob Clavett. Amazing. Genius hormones in this chair. Do you feel obliged to um, pass that chair down to um, another up-and-coming animator at the end of the day? Well, I let I let all the guys that work here sit in the genius chair once in a while. Not too often, though, because I don't want to wear it out. Right? No. Well, I guess when I'm uh, 
death's door, I'll probably pass it on to uh-huh. some worthy person. In the meantime, keep some of the hormones to yourself. Pass the hormones to the generations. Keep <laughs> that was wonderful uh, scientific theory there. Some of my favorite uh, of the short films that you've worked on are the ones with the Hanna-Barbera characters, like the Yogi Bear shorts, the Ranger Smith cartoon. How does that come about when you do a story? It's not a parody of the characters, it's the actual characters, but you're putting it, them in this, not adult, but certainly an edgier scenario. You know what I mean? Well, that's a good example of uh, the early Hanna-Barbera cartoons were completely character-driven uh-huh. because they didn't have the budgets to do full animation. Bill and Joe, or Hanna-Barbera, you know, they made the Tom and Jerry cartoons, which were lushly animated, beautiful full animation. But those cartoons were really expensive to make. When uh, TV came in, if you wanted to get cartoons on TV every week, the budgets were one-tenth of that. Like, I think the original Huckleberry Hound cartoons were $3,000 each or something. Well, there's no way you could have lush animation like that. So instead, they changed the focus from the from the animation to personality. Like Tom and Jerry don't really have personalities. Right. It's just a cat and a mouse, right? But the animation is so good that it's fun to watch. Whereas Bugs Bunny has a personality. Happy Duck is Forky Pig. The Hanna-Barbera cartoons relied almost exclusively on the way the characters looked and their voices. They were designed by Ed Benedict, who had a really appealing design style, and he made the characters just look great. Right? They were made for toys. And then Dawes Butler and Don Messick, all the great actors, Mel Blanc. Mm-hmm. Um, they had great voices, Janet Waldo, in the early Hanna-Barbera cartoons. They had all radio voices, really distinct voices. Mm-hmm. So they had distinct designs, distinct voices, they had distinct personalities, and the stories were kind of funny. And even though they had limited animation, they were hugely popular because they were character-based and kids like characters. They like to believe these characters are real. And uh, gradually that disappeared. And they started coming up with more realistic, you know, bland characters like Scooby-Doo. And, you know, now we have the star system, where they have celebrity voices. And the celebrities might be great actors or something, but when you hear their voice as a cartoon character, it just sounds like your neighbor. It doesn't sound like like a character. Cartoon voices had iconic sounds to their voice. Mm. Mel Blanc, even before he did Bugs or Foghorn Leghorn or anything, he had a great sounding voice. He had a musical sounding voice. It was very distinct. Even if he's just speaking normal, it's like, wow, that's a great voice. You can tell he's a radio personality. They had people who completely relied on their sound because you couldn't see what Mel Blanc looked like. You couldn't see what Fred Flintstone's voice, Alan Reed, uh-huh. looked like. So, yeah, anyways. When I grew up, I taught myself to draw watching the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. You know, they were easier to draw than, than Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry and, and, and stuff like that. So I, you know, I learned how to draw those characters. I started writing my own stories with them. And then I started doing my own weird caricatures of those characters, right? I would take their basic personalities and their designs and exaggerate them. Just like if I was to draw your caricature, mm-hmm. I'd draw a funnier version. I'd distill your traits and make it more exaggerated. Yeah. Well, that's what I with the Hanna-Barbera cartoons that I did in the 90s for, for Cartoon Network. And that was really fun. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, I wasn't necessarily making fun of the characters. It was taking what was already there and then just pushing it further, making it more extreme. Yeah. I, like I did with The Simpsons. Yeah, it was uh, very yeah. interesting. You know, uh, I couldn't tell the story in 30 seconds. I only had 30 seconds. It's just a couch gag. But I took their basic personality and really distilled it so I could tell the, you know, tell it fast. Yeah. How do they approach you for that one? Was that something you came up with them with the idea, or did they 
approach you to, to direct that? Al Jean emailed me, uh-huh. said he and Matt had been talking about asking me to do a, a couch gag in, in my design style. And uh, so I, I went down to Fox and had lunch with them and did a bunch of sketches with them there. And we, we thought up the idea together. And they said, you know, just do it, do it, do it off model, do it your way, do it, mm-hmm. exaggerate it, and just have fun with it. And it was a riot to do, it was really fun to do. So you were in charge of the animation proper rather than giving their team like layouts and stuff? No, I animated. Excellent, yeah. In fact, they uh, originally they thought if I just storyboarded it, then they would give it to their animation. Uh-huh. Because they're so used to drawing everything on model, tracing the model sheets, that even if I give them a crazy looking storyboard, very exaggerated looking storyboard, they're going to tone it all down. It'll never look like I, nobody will ever know that I had anything to do with it. Hmm. So I guess it was kind of the case when they had Banksy do it. Right, and in Banksy's case, he came up with the idea and he drew it out. But they had uh, the Simpsons crew uh, animated, yeah. laid out, made it. So we kind of don't know it's Banksy unless they tell you. Yeah. Because it, it just looks like a regular Simpsons. It's funny, really funny. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have known it was Banksy except that they told me it was Banksy. Big in the so they just took it a step further and said, let's have you actually make it look like you did it. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I think it's that's fun. I love the old cartoons because you can tell one animator from the other. Yeah. Chuck Jones's cartoons look different than Tex Avery's cartoons. They look, even if they're both doing Bugs Bunny, they look different. It's a quality that I, I actually see in, in Ren and Stimpy. Even sort of before the Spike run, but in the sort of last few years of that original Nickelodeon run, there were some of the same directors from the original run. And it got to a point where episodes would look very, very distinct from one another. And I sort of subsequently became like a fan of certain people who directed Back and Ren and Stimpy. And you can really see their style in those old episodes, like people like Bill Ray and, and Chris Riccardi. Like there's a, a very different and individual kind of design sensibility. Yeah, even within the cartoons, you can tell when one artist finishes off a scene and then switches to another uh-huh. artist. Like Jim Smith would do a bunch of scenes and Chris Riccardi would do some scenes and it would look different. Yeah. You could tell Camp would do some scenes it would look like Bob's drawing style. Vincent Waller had a really un- has a really unique drawing style. He directed some of the cartoons. Uh-huh. The second season, he's one of the SpongeBob artists. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, I, I really believe in, if an artist is a really good artist, they have skill, and they can stay on character and personality, they should then bring some of their own personality into the, into the drawings. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, like, most studios want everybody to draw exactly the same. They call it on model. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, to me, is like, well, just make one cartoon then. What do you need? more than one cartoon if they're going to look exactly the same for 10 years why do you need more than one cartoon mm. I draw it I mean even in, in live action real people have more than three expressions freeze frame somebody freeze frame your favorite actor or comedian or something they're never on model the in-betweens are all like weird and stuff cartoons should be like that too it's sort of like tabloid photography when paparazzi will take pictures of celebrities coming out of clubs or something and they choose that shot where you've caught them and in I'll that get the ugliest pictures yeah. of stars. it's hilarious I feel bad for the movie <laughs> seeing themselves splashed on these pages with their pimples and, and you know whatever some weird like in between expression Yeah, can't control it must drive them nuts <laughs> but yeah that's what the way people really are though yeah. and if, you know I always try to get that into my cartoons and animators generally are so trained to not express themselves in a cartoon. 
and it just stick to the models. You know, all if you see model sheets in, in most cartoons, they have whatever there are five expressions for each character, which are pretty much the same five expressions as every other character. And if you draw a new expression, the director, or the producer, somebody will tell you, "I hate that's off model." Hmm. And I think that sort of that Simpson sequence where like there's no. So it seems like just watching it in motion, it seems like there's no two frames alike. Even though it's very identifiably your style, it did seem like it was slightly in a different direction or a new direction. There was a l something a little more abstract in terms of maybe the use of color and the constant fluidity to the way they moved. Um, yeah, just did it. Yeah. I tried to stick with the characters, personalities. I think the one that I changed was, uh, was large. Uh -huh. I just wanted to make her hot. You know, I was sort of, I was inspired by olive oil. Uh -huh. I love the, the, the Fleischer's animated olive oil, the crazy arms and legs and everything. It's just really fun. I wanted to try something like that with Marge. So mm -hmm. I kind of, I didn't really follow her personality. I just made her crazy. Uh -huh. But Homer is pretty much Homer. He's just a distilled version of him. Yeah. Just wants his beer. He wants his wife to be subservient. <laughs> I do bite. Cool. Art's a little asshole. And you've also been, I guess, for a few years now, quite active as far as the whole blogging thing goes, with like you know theory and updates on projects. And um, I mean, do you find that that's been a good way of uh, keeping communication with people, like getting a sort of immediate reactions to people and, and feedback? Uh, I think the blog revolution really did some great stuff for. Uh, I know it did for animation. I, you know, probably does it for every medium. But when the blogs first hit, and, and I'm not talking about mine. But Steve Worth has an absolutely great animation archive blog. Mm -hmm. There's so much information now online about not just you know animation that everybody already knew about like Disney, but stuff that's been forgotten. Great old comic books, you know, hundred years worth of comic strips, yeah. and all this stuff is um, available to young cartoonists you know who need inspiration. Like when I, when I was a kid, it was really hard to find uh, any information on animation. There was one or two Disney books, and I read those a million times over and over. And now, I mean, all the information you would ever want about cartoons, comics, illustration, it's all available online. It should cause a renaissance in yeah. cartooning for the next generation because there's so much inspiration to pull from now. We don't have to be as inbred as animation has been for the last 30 years or so. Yeah. So, yeah, blogs are great. I mean, it's a visual medium. It's yeah. the most visual medium, even more than live action. I mean, even old classic live action movies, the directors were artists. John Ford was an artist. John Houston, mm -hmm. Maltese Falcon, he was an artist and a writer. Yeah. These, these old directors were, were artists. They really were visual people. In cartoons, it's even more so. I mean, everybody in a cartoon production in the 1930s to the 1950s was an artist. They didn't even use scripts. If you, if you went to Disney, Walt Disney, and said, hey, I've got this great script for a cartoon, he'd look at you like you were crazy. In animation, you use storyboards, and you have animators who have a story sense, write the stories, but they, they write them on storyboards. As soon as the scripts took over the animation business, it was kind of the end of the visual part of animation. Hmm. And uh, it, you know, since the 60s, it's just become more and more inbred. I think now people with more individual styles uh, can start to blossom. Yeah. Maybe there'll be another golden age like there was in the 30s or something. I mean, I'm hoping. I hope there is. I would love to I'm sure many, many people would love to see the art of Spumco, the book, that I guess had a bit of a troubled history. Is there any like chance, do you think, of the world seeing that in some form? It's a long story. Okay. But, listen, I collect art of books, 
and I'm always frustrated that there's usually not much art in the art of books. Right. It's all text or white space. In the last 20 years, a new job category has uh, been invented. Books, it's the book designer, where you get some kind of fancy book designer whose goal is not to showcase the art, but to showcase his book design. So you get all these weird things like somebody will take a comic book panel you know, from Kirby Comics and blow it up you know, for a two-page spread of an eye. So you don't even get the, not only right. do you not get the whole page of the comic, or you don't even get the whole panel, you just get some eye. <laughs> so why can't they just do what people want? If it says the art of so-and-so, put the art in it. Yeah. Forget the, all that text, forget all that dead white space, show the art in its most beautiful, glorious detail because that's why you're buying the book. You're not buying the book for who, for the writer, yeah. the guy who wrote the text and his opinions. You know, like you'll read 12 paragraphs to tell you how beautiful this painting is that Mary Blair did. You know what? Let me to enjoy how beautiful it is. <laughs> I don't need you to tell me it's beautiful yeah. and explain why it's beautiful. Just give me the goddamn drawing. And this was going on with my book. You know, I told them from the beginning, I said, look, I don't want to do this book if it's going to be like a typical modern art out of book. I, I only want to do it if I can actually give the audience what they're buying the book for, and that's the art. Hmm. You have so many beautiful backgrounds, like Bill Ray and Scott Wills, Vicki Jensen, all these great layouts and storyboards from Jim Smith, Bob Camp, Bruce Tim. You know, all these artists that people love, that's what they want. Yeah. And they promised me in the beginning, oh yeah, don't worry, John, we'll do it just how you want it. And then they had me write a book that was a million pages, like a thousand pages. Every time I'd write something, they'd want me to elaborate on the story. And I kept saying, look, I, you know, I could put these stories on my blog for free. Yeah. No, 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 you got to rewrite it, rewrite it, add some more stuff. <laughs> and I wrote way too much stuff. And then when they started to lay it out, they did exactly what, what I said I didn't want. Tons of dead white space. Yeah. Like tons of it. You couldn't even believe it. it Anyways, I think that's why folks are dying. Mm. Because they won't give people what they want. You know, the blogs do. You can go to a blog yeah. of your favorite comic artist or something, or just some collector will put up, you know, original art from old comics. They give you the whole art. They, they scan it at a decent resolution, and uh, you can print it out if you like it. Everything that you want to see is available now on the internet. Mm. There's almost no reason to have art of books anymore, unless they were going to do really good printing, make the book really big, and make the art big. Yeah. Nobody seems to be doing that. Hmm. It's the art of white space. Well, possibly a, a, a sort of future incarnation of it could be perhaps digital, or I guess it sort of depends how the technology goes and how the sort of... Kickstarter. Yeah? You know, a lot of people are asking me, aren't you publishing a kit? Because I know a couple of self-publishers who do really nice art books. Hmm. Maybe I'll just, I mean, I have tons of artwork. Maybe I'll just do a, an art book that has no text in it except the credit of who, who the artists were. Yeah. And then put all the story stuff online for free. Yeah. You get a code, and you can just, if you want to read the backstories, That's fine. brilliant. Yeah, that, uh, no, that would work fantastically. And I, yeah, I, I, I could see a lot of, you know, public enthusiasm for that. Hopefully, you know, fingers crossed on that one. Because uh, the reason that these cartoons and, and the stuff that Spoko did Shined the way it was at the at its heart was really good art. In the future, do you have like feature story ideas? Uh, yeah, I've got lots of feature story ideas. I got this character called Peahog the Atomic Pig. Oh yeah, it's a superhero pig. It's a it's a spoof on superheroes, but it's not just a generic spoof on 
superheroes. Like everything I do, it, it's about the characters than it is about the genre. Although there's a lot of you know genre jokes. I mean, people who read superhero comics will love it because right. it is full of. I mean, you know, I grew up with Marvel comics and DC comics and all the superheroes and everything. So I know the whole legends of all of them, and it kind of I make fun of it. But it's also about the personalities of the, of the characters themselves. Mm -hmm. Like we do a lot of visual gags that come out of the personalities. It's not just written gags. Well, uh, wishing all the best with it. We're quite excited to see the the film, you know, come together. Um, thank you so much for talking to me. It's an absolute pleasure. Okay. Uh, thanks very much, mate. Have a good day. So that was Ben there interviewing John Christopher amongst other things, talking about the circle of life with uh, with the chair. Yes, the, the, the tale of Bob Clampett's chair. I wonder how much that would go for. Because not only has it absorbed all of uh, Bob Clampett's hormones, it's, it's got quite a few of John Kay's now as well. Mm. There's quite a stew bubbling away in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, gross. But I'm glad I'm sat on a wooden chair at the moment, because we've got this in your, in your, at your place, Ben. I don't think there's anything of value that's been absorbed by any of my furniture. <laughs> So I'm really looking forward to Cans Without Labels now. Yeah. Just seeing uh, what he can create without the uh, without the filter of a major producer getting mm. in the way. It's also great to hear his approach to the um, Simpsons project. He was really the guy that started off the alternate uh, opening titles with his sort of wacky take on the, the Simpsons, which has recently been done by uh, Bill Plimpton as well. So all these sort of indies are uh, creating some fantastic title sequences for such a, a big show. I think it's going to start like a trend of mm. other sort of... Like I could see, you know, people like you know Don Hertzfeld or Pez or, you know, people like doing their own down the line. I don't know if that's going to be the plan, but, you know, I'd welcome that. So he was the first to completely animate it himself. It was like he was saying about like Banksy, which I agree when he says that, you know, if, if no one had told me, I wouldn't have known that was Banksy. Like there was nothing really about it apart from the signature. Yeah. You know, that... Uh, because it was it was animated, you know, in that Simpson style rather mm -hmm. than anything else. And when you saw like the sort of the sketches that Banksy did that the animation studio developed, they were quite rudimentary. And also, to be perfectly, I mean, did you watch the Banksy one? That was a couple of years ago, I think. Yes, yeah, that's why I thought there were separate projects because the uh, the Bill Plimpton one and the John Kay one they finish with the signature that pops up, mm. whereas the Banksy one doesn't necessarily have a signature on it. It's just sort of like storyboarded almost by him as a sort of. His take on his take on Hollywood. So I thought these two were completely separate entities. I think something you know, John Kay should be sort of applauded for. I guess is sort of putting his foot down and, and having him sort of be the one to take on the animation. Because then you really get the sort of unique sense. I mean, it's sort of the point of animation, you know. Hmm. Um, which I guess Banksy isn't really. He's a you know he's a accessible political. He's, the, he's, satire the, he's guy. Bristol's Robin Hood. Yes, um, yes. It's interesting when you think of like how. Someone like John Chris Lucy is, is contemplating making a complete switch to digital processes. It's taken a long time for the you know digital to catch up to really be as intuitive and be as you know uh, a natural and organic feeling as traditional pencil on paper or ink on paper or ink on cell animation. And people you think would would perhaps you know really want to hold on to those traditional processes. Of course, they're the ones who are going to be the most familiar with it and possibly the most sick of it. You know? Yes. Yeah. Like if you can, what you mean, I don't have to paint every cell by hand. Bill Plimpton does it digitally now. And you know, I mean, he still, he still is, you know, pencil on paper to a degree, but as far as post-production goes and compositing, it just makes more sense mm -hmm. from a budgetary standpoint. And, uh, and I'm definitely, I'm, I'm in both camps. I like 
the lightbox animation and I like the digital animation. Um, for work, obviously, digital is more in demand. It's a quicker turnover. People, it's sort of an industry expectation that you should know your way around a tablet. Yes. Um, I have one of those brains that sucks when it comes to like you know having the tablet you know away from the screen and uh, having to reacclimatize myself to like the tablet process and you know get my my hand and brain and screen all sort of in sync, um, which is why I eventually bit the bullet and bought myself a Cintiq last year. And l- last year we got sent a 24HD to the squiggly offices. So we which was not the one I bought. No, no. we managed <laughs> A little to out of my price range. But, uh, <laughs> managed to have a little play around with that. So, so we've got three to compare really with the, with the Cintiqs being the... Well, you have one as well. You yeah. have the in-between model. You have the... What is it? The, the 21, 21 US. Yeah. 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 So, so, so we've, we've, we've had a play around with all three really. So... Uh, and you got yours earlier this year, right? Yeah. 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 I got mine just to, to deal with, with clean up and stuff on my mm-hmm. film, which looks like it will never ever get finished <laughs> uh, they all look like that at one point yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one day I'll abandon it and call it finished <laughs> <laughs> like so many that have come before you <laughs> yes yeah that's the true animation way mine really is like the baby model but it sort of it suits my purposes I guess I was not looking to to spend a lot you know but I I, I what I really needed was something that would fill in that gap that thing of like okay if if it's not the worst thing in the world, you know, having to sort of, you know, uh, refamiliarize yourself with the tablet way. But like, uh, if you can draw it on screen, that's just cool. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's just better. It's like a really, really awesome magna doodle. You know, yes, yeah. Draw on the right, screen yeah. and it appears. So mm-hmm. it's it's fabulous like that, and it comes in handy for so many other things, things that you didn't necessarily even buy it for. But when you think of just like everything that uh, uh, you do with a mouse, you know. Um, not even, I mean, illustration, obviously, design, typography, lettering. Um, you know, you can use it for CG stuff. You can do, like, the sort of, you know, texturing models. You can do spline creation, you know. Um, I love using mine for backgrounds, mm. for, like, painting all the backgrounds and getting in with the details. Because then you don't have to, like, you know, do a really elaborate, like, background sketch and then, you know, scan it in parts or whatever. You yeah. know, you can get it really just looking exactly how you want it to look. I, I can spend, I can waste a day. It's not wasted time, is it? But I can spend oh, the entire yeah. day. All goes in the pot. Yeah, mm. rather than, because I love the sort of watercolour style, so rather than, uh, you know, spilling water all over my painting or, yeah. or doing the wrong the wrong shade of blue in the sky or something and ruining the whole thing, work on layers and, and, and work on things on, on a programme such as, as Photoshop, which is great. And my, my scene team has got like a adjustable, you can move it to whatever position you like, you can spin it around, which is great. Spring-loaded. You know, so everything just sort of settles at exactly the right. You could quite happily just kind of like, you know, if you're tired, lean against it and have a bit of a nap, you know, um, nice warm screen. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had a very limited sort of play around with it. But um, I mean, what would you say, like, for your purposes, I guess, like having the bigger work area? Because mm-hmm. I basically, I needed something that was roughly A4, because that's what I'm used to as far as animating, you know, an A4 paper. So the 12X screen, which is the one I have, is just a little smaller than A4. And you can zoom in in whatever software you're using. So if you need to sort of yeah. like, you know, really fine tune. And it's, even if I'm doing like, if I want to do the animation actually in pencils, because there are some, sometimes if there's a certain type of character movement, there's a process I have in my head where I have to like take all the paper off, like away from the peg bars and like do a sort of thing with my fingers and have them all like splayed out. This isn't making any sense to describe. I'm contorting my fingers in a way that uh, looks like I'm doing some kind of card trick, but the sort of tricks that you can't really replicate in any tablet, you know, or any any screen. So if there's a certain shot that needs to be pencil animated, you import it back in, you clean it up in a, on, a, on a Cintiq, and it looks brilliant. 
that's the other thing is like inking in clean up and stuff like that and coloring of course like it, it's just an absolute boon so even if you want to preserve that traditional you know way of doing things mm-hmm. there are so many cool little things that make it look more professional make it look more modern make the line quality look a lot smoother and you know with the software that you get you know photoshop and toon boom the corel softwares and stuff like that, yeah. that that really do a good job of replicating you know what a, a pencil line looks like you know what a, a, an ink line looks like it's never going to be exactly there You'd need like a sort of AI, I think, to, to really properly replicate mm. that. What do we lose out on though? Because although it's great having all these bits and bobs, it's, you do lose a little bit. Couple tunnel backache. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. I, I love drawing in pencil. Yeah. I love. I've, I've still got a big pile of animation paper in my light box. Sits next to my Cintiq, mm. looking at it quite enviously. Oh, right um, now, I'm, I'm going back and forth between two projects. One's on the Cintiq and one's on the light box. It's, mm. the, the, the thing is that like you don't rescind your rights to pencil ownership if you buy one you know the paper and pencils will always still be there yeah um, yeah I think they need to be as well you can't really just dive into being completely digital can you without losing unless you, if you want to keep what you love and enjoy about your current animation style you've got to keep going back to that if, you, if you're if you a pencil animator I, I would say uh, you have to keep going back to to drawing occasionally yeah. you know there's nothing beats a sketchbook for working out problems or ideas or finding solutions it may be a generational thing because, you know, we're so old. There's this danger, I think, or, or, you know, they wouldn't look at it like that. But I think, like, you know, generations within our lifetime may find anything that you hold in your hands antiquated an old hat. That's kind of a nightmare scenario. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, things are, that are on the way out, like DVDs or anything with packaging, you know, books are dying out because of the kids. That would be unimaginable to me, mm. you know, 10 years ago. That's a shame. Um, I got I got upset when they stopped putting booklets in the DVDs. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I noticed that one, but I do like the when they put the effort into the packaging. Mm. You know, I like a, a, a record label or, or a studio that will make it something that you, you're happy to hold in your hands because it, it's sort of... It's nice to own stuff. It's nice to consume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the, the Western way, <laughs> which is just take from the world. Um, For momentary happiness, uh, consume. <laughs> you, you can always go back to the light box, unless you've burned it for firewood. Too. Well, you wouldn't. You might need to because they are quite expensive, these Cintiq, so you may not be able to pay gas bills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening to this podcast in a you know, post-apocalyptic future, where the world is ruled by Cintiqs, so when we had the 24HD over at the Squiggly offices, some of our Squiggly audience out there were able to come along and give it a bit of a test drive, some of whom have let us know their impressions of it, beginning with Joe Hepworth, uh, joannahepworth.co.uk. Having never used a Cintiq of any kind before, I felt like being presented with a computer for the first time. You have to change the way you naturally want to click and select things. The 24HD is about the size of my monitor at home, but felt enormous when used as a drawing pad. Although I was told there are several buttons that can be customized for shortcuts, I'd probably not have enough. I need at least two for erasing my hideous mistakes. I think the size is perfect for detailed work. You can see much more of the image you're working on, and you'd probably have to move around the screen a little less than on smaller ones. I imagine I'd get used to it a lot quicker if I had more time with it. The only reason I'd probably think twice about owning one is that it's pretty big. Aside from the screen size itself, it had these big panels either side for buttons and hand rests, which means I'd probably have to get another desk. It was also pretty pricey, putting it just a little bit out of an independence price range. And from Anna Glagowska, mala.me.uk My thoughts, I bought it for myself. 
Unfortunately, shortly after I found a full-time job not too much connected with animation and my Cintiq stands idle for most of the time, but as a warm-up I made a short test. It took one evening and normally I'm sure it would take a few. Drawing on paper, scanning, line testing, making corrections, and scanning once again. But what can I say about the Cintiq? It's a perfect tool, especially if you know you can draw. You have tons of scribbled papers as proof, but somehow when you use standard graphic tablets, even those expensive ones, all your drawings look like junk. You see your hand, you see your paper or canvas, you know, you see the pen, pencil, and at the same time you see exactly what your hand's doing, not only a line on a screen far away. The highlights, it saves time, saves paper, it's adjustable for your preferred work position, bundled with different cables so no problem to connect with any machine you have, uh, also a set of different nibs, from hard and grainy to soft brush for a pen is included so you can choose what suits you best, and more important in my opinion, the natural feeling of drawing. Things are not so shiny about the price. Uh, finally, a uh, succinct piece of feedback. I found that Cintiq to be oppressively huge and intimidating. The actual drawing on it seemed nice and smooth, but reaching for keyboard shortcuts required a lot of effort. That's Seb Burnett at rumpusanimation.com. Um, sort of echoing Joanna's point and uh, making a good case, I think, for one of the smaller models, like the one I have. I mean, it does have those customizable shortcut buttons, you know, on either side of the screen. But, you know, there aren't as many as you'd conceivably need, so it is better to have something, perhaps, that's, you know, more keyboard adjacent. That way you're completely covered. What did you think to the size difference? Because, obviously, you've got the... What size is that one? It's about 12 inches. Uh, yeah. Uh, Measly 12 inches. So, what did you think of the, the size difference working on a 12-inch one? working on this 24-inch behemoth which took up half a desk. I mean, what, 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 what did you think to that? I would say that the big one would be perfect for illustrators, mm-hmm. perhaps more than uh, character animators. I mean, it does sort of depend on, on what type of work. If you're working on a movie, you'd probably want the massive one because movies and character animation in films requires a lot more sort of detail and a lot more sort of um, considerate line work and stuff like that, which again, you can you can do on a small screen by zooming in, but it does sort of, it takes out that element of the process. But in most respects, and in terms of like the workspace you'd be working in, in, in you know, a flash or a tomb boom or whatever, it's sort of surplus to requirements. It does help that it's HD. Um, that I think would be, rather than the actual physical surface space, just like the screen resolution, I think is, is more beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think like as if, if you're doing illustrations, if you're doing concept art, if you're doing layouts and backgrounds, the bigger one would be, you know, the, the, the one to go for because you just, that's the workspace you start with and you can just sort of go from there. You know, it's like you're working with, you know, a giant sheet of paper with all these added sort of perks of, you know, being able to fine tune areas and stuff like that and do things with layers. Very cumbersome, but not, that's not the worst thing in the world, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the price that's, uh, I mean, it's something between like two and $3,000, I think, which is, you know, mm. not, I mean, that's something between, you know, at this point, you know, 2,500 pounds, you know, like 1,800 pounds would be probably the lowest you could get it for. Yeah. And that would be like, you know, through some very suspicious channels. Yeah. I mean, I, I adopted my uh, my little Cintiq from a, uh, a designer in Estonia who uh, I think she had two, so she wanted to get rid of one. So I got a very, very good rate. But that was one of those things where like kismet just sort of is, is in your favor. But if you were just like, you know, shopping online and not relying on, you know, indescribable forces of goodwill and nature to be in your corner, I think at this point, like the, the smaller models would be something like between four and 800. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say the 21s go at? Mine made quite a dent in my 
Yeah. Bank balance. So the um, thousand plus or yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah, okay. one thousand two hundred. If you're lucky, that sort of that's right, right. price. Yeah, but do you feel then as an investment, it's worth it? Yes, yeah, yeah. I do. Th- I do think. I do think so. Yeah, because yeah. like you say, it's it's almost a requirement now, isn't it? It's what, what the what the studios go for, and if you want to be a freelancer, you want to save some time. You don't want to spend all day clicking with the mouse, coloring in individual frames, or finding the gaps in in drawings and stuff. You there's a lot of benefits to having a, a screen that you can draw on, an awful lot of benefits, especially as an artist. So yes, yeah. I would, I would recommend. Yeah, it's not like a, buying a sandwich maker or a, you know a, a smoothie maker where you use it a few times and then you put it away. Yeah, like it is a long haul investment. Yeah, of, of okay, I'm gonna be, ha- I'm gonna have this by my side for a good long while. I'll be using you know? it every single day. Yeah, yeah. And like I said before, even not for even animation stuff or whatever, it's it's great for just software in general. Yeah. Anything where that involves sort of you know on screen interactive stuff, you know apps and interactive websites, stuff you know completely separate. Like I, I use it to write music now because I, I write on a grid system. It's like you're drawing music. It brings this extra layer of having it you know be more of an artistic process than just transcribing something by clicking with a mouse. You know. When you think of like a sort of cost breakdown of, of materials, also, that if, I mean, if you're a studio, yes, I mean, think of the expenditure on, on you know materials, especially if you were making a feature. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you would essentially make your money back quite quickly. And even if you're just making short films or expected to provide materials for like work commissions and stuff like that, you know, you end up saving a lot. You know, and if you have it for a few years, it is a sort of common sense type purchase. You know? yeah, yeah, I would like to point out at this point that uh, this podcast isn't sponsored in any way by Wacom. We no, just I really, wish. really like the product. Did you even um, get a discount on mine? <laughs> Maybe we could wrangle a deal where we can get some replacement nibs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one man who has kept it traditional and, and steered away from the lure of Cintiqs and technology, even so far as using a computer, in his latest production is Neil Boyle. Uh, Neil Boyle, uh, if you watch credits, may be recognisable as the assistant to Richard Williams. Uh, Something of a a force of nature in animation. Yeah, Yeah. if you haven't heard of Richard Williams, then you're listening to the wrong podcast. Richard Williams, of course, being the guy behind the animator's survival kit, Mm -hmm. and uh, of course, Roger Rabbit, and uh, the ill-fated Thief and the Cobbler, or Cobbler and the Thief, I forget how that turned out in the end because yeah. well, it didn't really uh, title. pan out. Yeah. <laughs> As you'll hear in the interview, Neil joined Richard Williams when he began working on uh, Robert Zemeckis's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I'm sure a favourite film of uh, a childhood film at least of many uh, of our listeners. Um, me especially, I really enjoyed that. It's one of those like really spectacular pieces of work that's very hard to criticise because there's so much about it to like. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just it's it's on top of the animation being good, which is a, a very crucial element of it. It's just a good film. It's funny. It's got this crazy energy to it. it I think it was the first to really mix animation and live action in that fluid way. Think of the, the Dot and the Bunny movies. <laughs> I mean, it's a million miles away from something like that, and it wasn't even that much long afterwards. You know, and actually. I don't think that they've really been able to capture that sense. Well, you see it, those Looney Tunes films, those yeah, like Brendan Fraser ones, and stuff. like I saw a bit of that on TV. They can't get the eye lines right. the The live action actors aren't looking at the, the cartoons. If you look at Roger Rabbit, they nailed it. Yeah, I don't know if you can get it in England, but there's a really good Roger Rabbit DVD that uh, I, I got in the states that has all this geeky crap on it you know yeah. the behind the scenes stuff documentaries and pencil tests because they, they, um, they took a, a photograph of every or they took every frame every frame it. Yeah. so the animators drew over that didn't they as opposed to 
inserting later and moving around on on, on the computer or, or, yeah. or, or however it's done nowadays. Which would be the easy way to do it, but you know the the results do speak for themselves. Mm. And I think in a, in in a lot of respects, it's timeless. Isn't exactly the word in terms of the continuing nature of how film and animation evolves, but it, it is timeless in terms of its spirit in terms of its its successful execution. You know? And it's got a very firm place in the history of animation as the kickstart to the the, the second or third golden age, however you, mm. went, however you, you wish to arrange your golden ages, it was the second or third uh, golden age because after that, people got interested in these characters again. Yeah. And then you and obviously there was a big uh, boom at Disney, mm-hmm. um, Don Bluth, had huge successes in the years post Roger Rabbit. The road to that crest of a wave for a good 10 years, I would say. But so I've got a very firm place as the start of mm. that. Neil's career has followed that with Richard Williams. He'll tell us more about his career. He kept a load of uh, animation cells and a load of animation paint, mm. stored it over the years. And before the paint went off, he decided <laughs> to create a film. And, and in this day and age, to create what he has created in The Last Bell, is the title of the film that we, uh-huh. we're going to talk about, is a major achievement. And not just a major technical achievement, it's a, it's a great film, it's a great story, it's it's a good laugh. It's, I would recommend people finding it in festivals and viewing it. Tick it in the programme, go and see it if you, can, if you can. So let's hand it over to the man himself, Neil Boyle. Hello Neil, thanks for talking to uh, Squiggly today. We're here to talk about The Last Bell, your um, film touring the festival circuit. But uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your work? Well, um, I, I got into animation in, I guess, uh, actually, no, I can't even remember, 1986 or 1987 when I was, I was, I was at a college, which was actually a kind of a terrible college, I won't name it, but I wasn't having a good time. Um, and I wasn't getting much in the way of teaching, and I met up with a, uh, a guy who became a very good friend of mine called James Baxter, who's a kind of big name in America now. Um, and the two of us started working on some films at, at this college. And uh, we heard about a production called Who Frame Roger Rabbit, which was setting up in London. So we ran, I mean literally ran, like Maniac, with our little bit of film and took it along there and got hired uh, as in-betweens on Who Frame Roger Rabbit. So that was kind of the beginning of my career. It was an incredibly lucky early break to work with, you know, very good names, uh, Bob Zemeckis. We had a four-week trial period there where you had to prove you could actually in-between, otherwise you would get back out on the street again. Um, and we both passed that. And on the Monday morning, when they said, "Okay, you're hired, you're on this production properly," uh, that Monday morning, about ten o'clock, somebody came comes along and said, "Well, Richard Williams is looking for an assistant animator, and Andreas Dejer, who's the top Disney guy, is looking for an assistant animator. So how about you guys?" So James went off with Andreas Dejer, and I went off with Richard Williams, and that began my quite long association with working with Richard Williams. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of scary. I went up, I met him, he gave me some work, and I said, fine, I took it out of the room very professionally and sat down, and I just sat in my chair shaking for about an hour, thinking, my God, how am I going to do this work? This is the amazing Richard Williams, you know, and I'd literally just fallen out of college. Oh, well, were you his assistant on the uh, Thief and the Cobbler as well? Uh, by the time I got on to the Thief, well, by the end of Roger Rabbit, I was doing bits of animation. Um, but I wasn't credited. I, I, I officially became an assistant, but because I was Dick's assistant, I'd work on his scenes, but if we ran out of work there for a little while, I'd sometimes... He did a lot of fixing of other people's scenes if there were problems with them. Uh, and 
then you could guarantee little fixes to do on that film as well, but it's background animation and so on. So when Roger Rabbit finished, uh, I had a three month I'd sort of collapsed in a puddle in the bed for three months with exhaustion and uh, sprang back up again. Also, uh, for people that don't know much about Thief and the Pablo, it went on for sure, 20, 30 years or something like that, and had many of the Hollywood great animators working on it. They had done rough animation, but they never had the money to have the animation cleaned up and put into colour. So some of this rough animation by the by amazing names like uh, you know, Ken Harris and Paul Cole and so on, uh, to David. Uh, some of that animation was in rough form. Quite often, my early work on that film was to take a scene that was already rough animated Wow, so you could, you could say you've worked with Ken Harris, amazing. <laughs> oh, I don't want to sound sentimental, but it's such a precious relationship with it, although I never met him, there isn't a day that goes by in my, in my working life where I don't apply things that I learned off Ken Harris. And at the end of it, he was just an amazing teacher, even though I didn't meet him, and he didn't even know I existed. Oh, excellent. That brings us nicely onto uh, on, onto your film because I, I mean I've seen the film a few times, um, and I would I would say that the quality of the film, obviously due to your training with with Richard Williams and, and, and all that you've learned from the likes of Ken Harris, it's an amazing film. It's an amazing amazing accomplishment. So congratulations on on the last bell. It, although it took sixteen years to complete, was it sixteen fifteen years to complete? Fifteen years from from script to screen. Yeah. I mean. Not full time. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, it's, it's, it's a story that almost parallels uh, uh, the Thief and the Cobbler, doesn't it? Uh, but how did the finished product differ from the initial concept? I mean, did many of the factors evolve from the storyline over time? Um, it's, it's interesting. Not, not particularly. Well, I, I've got a way of working. A lot of people that have asked me about working on this film. I've said, how can you work on something so long and not get bored? Uh, you know, not just after a few years, and oh God, I can't stand it anymore. You know? And I had a very, I've got a very particular way of working, I found, which is that I try and work on the script as a written thing first. And I may do little character designs up in the margins. I may do little half-hearted storyboards, you know, three or four panels with a vague idea. But what I try and do is not get too visual, just... And an animator's disease is to love visuals. You fall in love with your own drawings, you fall in love with your own visual ideas. And I thought, what I really want to try and do is nail this story. I mean, I'm not making great claims to the story. It's a, it's a fairly simple, you know, cartoon, fun story. But I really wanted to get that script right. I think in the end we did about 27 drafts of the script, and it was crazy. Uh, I worked on it for a long time on my own, and I saw the friends in called Jim McGuire, and introduced little ideas as well. So, in a sense, it didn't evolve, evolve because we had this thing very nailed down in script form. But the way I kept it um, interesting for myself in terms of doing the animation, the other work was, uh, for example, there's a, there's a sequence in there where the drunk driver falls down some tunnels. Uh, and we knew that had to happen. We knew he had to be at the top of the stairs outside his, his building beginning of the shot and we knew he had to slam into a column at the end of the shot and we knew he had to be drunk in the middle of all this and we knew from the script that the shot needed to be about a minute long people taking a little so we had the structure but exactly how he was falling down tunnels wasn't in the script so that's how I kept it alive myself I had a structure I knew where I was going um, 
so we had the spine of the thing, but I didn't specify too many details. And then, so as we got into sequences, that's where I could keep it alive for myself and keep it creative. And so, yeah, I, I managed to keep my interest for 15 years by, by working that way. Yeah, I mean, the the, the piece that you were talking about in, in the film, uh, obviously Wally's, Wally's drunk, he's on his way to meet his blind date, uh, Rosie, he's tumbling in, into the uh, the underground, and it's an amazing sequence. I believe was it Roy Naysbitt who did the backgrounds of that of the layout. How how do you begin to even even imagine something like that? I mean, to to look at it, it looks like an M.C. Escher, but he has to think in an in a in an extra dimension because he has to think of it from a sort of the, you know the the camera moving across the background. And how did you sort of brainstorm with him? Well, it was interesting. I've been saying to people that I, I, I've worked with Roy off and on, you know, on Roger Rabbit and Steve, but I know his work from uh, Richard Williams' version of Christmas Carol that won the Oscar back in 1970-something or other. Um, and I loved his work. And Roy's got a very distinctive, strange way of using perspective. Uh, it's kind of almost being like a very, very distorted, very, very almost fish-eye. Um, you can't really put it into words, but it's very unique. And... I'd come up with this um, script with, with the drunk guy, and I thought, well, in a way, that strange perspective fits the feeling of drunkenness, you know, that strange way the room spins around you and the floor doesn't quite seem to be where it should be at the time. Speaking from personal experience. <laughs> so um, I thought maybe the Roy is a perfect match for this, so we started talking about it. Um, I gave him certain specific things in the brief, you know, there were a few things like he's got to climb it downstairs and straight down like he's falling out of a plane. Um, uh, and we want to lose all sense of up and down almost immediately so you don't quite know where the horizon line is. And I also wanted to break all the rules of where the character leaves the prey one side to re-enter the other side. It's almost deliberately confusing, uh, as it would be if you were falling downstairs. Run, you know. So within those sort of parameters, it's just a question of, of, of Roy... Uh, and I can't, I can't speak for Roy, he's, he's an amazing, unique genius and he has just a way of doing stuff and we, we, we kind of work on this stuff together but he'd sketch stuff out and show me and we'd shoot it on the video line tester uh, as it was then, just pre-digital line tester uh, and just pull these backgrounds through uh, frame of time and spin them around and try all sorts of things until we came up with interesting effects. But always, uh, what was sort of interesting was that uh, Ultimately, the camera in the sequence, in the final sequence, is following a character falling down the stairs. But what we were trying to do was get everything worked out in the background before I'd done the character. So we wanted to make sure the background effects kind of work and the environment worked. And once we nailed that down, I then had to go back in and animate the character. So it's quite technically difficult because I have to always have the character slightly ahead of leg and centre all the time because, you know, when you're trying to follow an actor, you know, like classic thing with the camera following the racing car, you know, the, the racing car slightly goes ahead of the camera and the camera's chasing to catch up with it, that kind of feeling you get. Um, so I had to sort of plan the animation in an odd way so that it looked like it was running ahead of where the background was all the time and actually motivating the camera movie and the camera movie was actually being finalised months before. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a very backwards and forwards um, situation between Roy and me constantly. It's just testing, 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 testing all the time, shooting stuff, seeing if it's working, if it wasn't fixing it, and making it work. That also leads us on to one of the um, one of the key things about this film is that it was completed entirely traditionally. 
And when I say traditionally, I don't mean pencil drawings and then Toon Boom or pencil drawings and Animo. I mean cells and paint and white gloves and pencils and, and, and cameras. The only thing you used a computer for was typing the titles at the end. Is that, that's correct, isn't it? I mean, was... The role of credits were... Um digital at the end just because it's the, it, we, we, we're up against it time-wise then to get into the London Film Festival. I almost perversely thought, shall we do it in Letra Search <laughs> so we can play with John Bartholfing? Oh, wow. But yeah, everything was traditional. So have you got a, a stack of, um, well, how many, 30,000 uh, drawings around? <laughs> 200, 250,000 drawings or something? 35,000 cells I had stacked up in about 70 boxes and Cells. Uh, will you, I mean, will you continue to use the technique? I mean, is your attic full of cells and, and paints that are still that still need using? I mean, in your own personal work, will you be creating anything else? And obviously, once you finish promoting the film, not with Xerox cell. I tell you, because I, I I ordered the last, as far as I know, the last Xerox cell that had a creme colour um, where I made my last order for the film, and I, it was crazy. There's so many funny little things that happened to this film, sort of like destiny things that kept my morale. And one was I, I need something like 10,000 Xerox cells to finish the film. I mean, I'd worked it out from the drawings we've done, and, and I turned up the uh, company and said, Can you, have you got 10,000 cells? And they go, well, we're not really sure, you know, nobody, first of all, the woman then fell off her chair when I ordered it, but nobody's ordering it. <laughs> then uh, they scurried off to the uh, to the back of the warehouse and sort of blew the dust off it, like the Raiders of the Lost Ark like warehouse now. And found the old Xerox, and I wanted whatever it was, ten thousand, and they had ten thousand three hundred or something like that, just enough to, you know, to cover cock-ups and, and stuff that happens during production. So it was an exact amount I needed. Odd things happened all through production. The exact amount of colour I needed. I was doing Rosie's hair, and I just scraped the bottom of the of the last bottle to do the last cell. It just it just lasted. You know? Oh wow! <laughs> uh, every time that kind of thing happened, I thought. This is destiny. This thing is. This thing is meant to be. You know, the morale. It does feel like the, the very last cell, the very last drop of paint. This could be the last absolutely traditionally animated film that yeah, anyone know, will see for a while. The last Xerox we put through the, uh, the last Xerox we put through the uh, photocopy machine. I think the machine kind of exploded almost literally after it fell to pieces. If like it just died, if like it knew it was keeping alive, and to do the last. Is that the last? So, you, so it looks like you have no choice but to uh, carry on like everyone else in the world, using <laughs> using Flash and Toon Boom and Animo or whatever. <laughs> it's good though, you know, there's still room to maybe make marks on paper and, and a little bit of frosted cell and normal, you know, non-zero, but normal hand-tracing cell around. And it's quite interesting, 
I, I, I did, um, I worked with Richard Williams a few years back on this thing called the Animated Survival Kit Animated, which is a 16 box set. Uh, and we did a title sequence for that, which if anybody knows the book, it's sort of these characters lined up marching along you know, profile view of them and walking along all these different styles of animation. And Dick decided wouldn't it be great to actually animate that. And we did this, uh, it was like a couple of minutes long promotional logo piece of all these characters walking in to a piece of music. And that we actually ended up doing on Hospital and painted as well. It's a lovely sequence. I've seen it. It's the promotion for, for Rich Williams DVDs, and you obviously animated the, uh, the the parts of the book, which every animation student, whoever wants to get into animation, should buy a Richard Williams book. I know it got me through quite a lot of my uh, animation uh, degree. So yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it's refreshing to hear that that animation still um, achieved in that way from that point of view. I mean, what, what, what's next for you? What's uh, on the cards? Will you be doing a sequel to the Last Bell, the second to Last Bell, or? <laughs> I've got a couple more short films I'd love to make, but I, you know, I need to get the money together to do that. Uh, I'm working with another director called Kurt Henry, who made a short film called Jump, which is doing rounds at festivals, which is a lovely film. I'm kind of like the traditional guy, who like he's the digital guy, but he loves traditional and I love digital, so we're a good mix. You know, we both like each other's stuff. Uh, we're working on a, on a feature film script, which is in very early stages yet, but it's something you know we'd really like to see and try and get funding for. Uh, and I've even come up with uh, a kind of Christmas special idea that I would love to do again if I could get interest from TV company for one of those kind of half hour things. So I've got various things bubbling. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today, Neil. I do encourage everyone to try and see The Last Bell. It is a, it is a marvellous film. Um, and all, all the more marvellous for knowing the, uh, the story behind it as well. So thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a real pleasure. So that was Neil Boyle talking to Steve about his new film, The Last Bell, amongst other things. It looks really nice. I love the character design. It's, it, uh, it's gorgeous. It's a great film. I first saw The Last Bell in, in the Bradford Animation Festival uh, and he brought uh, Roy Naisbitt, who is another Richard Williams veteran, mm -hmm. to talk about his work on The, the Last Spell. The, the artwork was incredible. Mm -hmm. When Wally, the main the main character, uh, who's had a few beers, uh, stumbles through the London underground, and it's it's like a, a modern M.C. Escher, the work that, he's, that he oh, does is great. It's fantastic to, to view. So mm -hmm. I do recommend going to see that, that film. So did he work on The Thief and the Cobbler as well? Yes, yeah, Richard Williams' assistant for years. Was so. that from, from the beginning? Of, or did he sort of come onto it later? No, he said the beginning was 1960s. It started in the 60s mm -hmm. um, and then just sort of as a background project and then built up to um, to a point where I think Richard Williams wanted to discard it and then... And then he came on And then he was offered point. money by a big studio, I believe it was Miramax. Gathered huge momentum and then unfortunately uh, the rug got lifted from underneath his feet and it is a, it's a genuine tragedy. I... I, I such so how did it? Why they did release it, but just not the film that he'd yeah envisioned. Beca because yeah, because it was released at the same time or as Disney's Aladdin, or around the same time as Disney's Aladdin, it didn't go down too well. Which oh, because of like the setting and the the setting, the similarities. You know, when it's like when a, when like a, a new Pixar film comes out or something like that, where like you'll go into Asda or Walmart or whatever and you'll see like the DVD of like the really badly made film yeah. that's obviously made to evoke the big blockbuster hit 
You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? like, and it's like, like three quid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you just know it's going to be dreadful. And it's like, and that one was literally a house with balloons like flying through the air. Yeah, it was a hot air balloon instead of balloons, wasn't it? Well, okay. And he was flying around, and that was the only difference or something on the cover. And it's yeah. uh, uh, so I yeah probably like back then that's that may have been what it seemed like like something trying to to capitalize on yeah which when really given how much time and I mean in a way it, it makes me happier. That you know, thank God for all the sort of hard work. He was able to land something like Roger Rabbit, even though it wasn't his film. Mm-hmm. You know, it it's a film for the ages, and his his name is attached to it, and will always he'll be remembered for something. It's just a shame that the the more personal one, you know, would have. Have you seen? I actually haven't like seen enough. I've seen like footage, but I haven't seen like enough to sort of gauge a story. Would it have been? Do you think a a, a strong film, given that it started in the sixties and like attitudes change quite quickly? Yes. The feelings that we all have of it today, which are usually, what a shame, what a shame, what a shame. Mm-hmm. And the way that it gets um, described today, you could replace that with a feeling of, what a film. Okay. So people would talk about it as much as they talk about it today, but they would talk about it in a different way. Because the style and the uh, the execution of the film, he aimed to make the, the best animated film in going and he would have been pretty damn close if he would have pulled I it mean off. is that best in technical terms in terms of how it was animated or is it best in terms of story and in terms of audience engagement technical story audience and then you get the audience engagement that's what he would have that's what he would have achieved okay. I think he would have achieved it given given the time and if, because the awful thing that the studio did was put the put voices over and, and put uh, Matthew Broderick's voice over and the silent character who was more of a Buster Keaton, more of a Charlie Chaplin, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. It, w- it would have been a very, very intelligent, very rewarding so, thing So they, they, they gave him dialogue? They gave him dialogue, yeah. Oh. How did they manage that? Did they have to like redo lip sync and stuff? Or? No, no, they just did his voice over as if, like Garfield, as if he was thinking it. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I see that that sort of impulse. I I can sort of acknowledge, like, oh well, an audience isn't gonna sit through, you know, a film where there isn't dialogue, because mm. <laughs> it's not like you know Fantasia did well. Or anything. Uh, uh, people. <laughs> but Fantasia is now viewed on as a classic, although it didn't make the money at the time. It's now people. Oh, it didn't. No, no. Oh, I was no. being sarcastic. Well, no, it. Would be, I was trying to make a point. Case, but this is it. This is a, it. It leads to another uh, great point because people view it now as. As a, it's like as masterpiece, the, yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm sure that's what the Thief and the Cobbler would have would have ended up being. Hmm. So it says something of uh, the legacy of the work of Richard Williams, such as Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. um, that we had a fantastic childhood with with the revival of animation and and all these, not just films but TV shows and things. It would end up with you know networks like Nickelodeon and and you know the Warner Brothers network, you know, coming up with new animation, not in the mold of, of you know, the past, you know, two decades mm-hmm. of, you know, pushing merchandise. It was animation about, you know, stories and about characters. And considering the audience perhaps as being more discerning or perhaps deserving more bang for their buck, which I guess leads us to our Versus uh, segment that we talked about a couple of podcasts back. Um, canvassing, I suppose, podcast listener appreciation for either Tiny Toons or the Animaniacs. Hmm. Now, remind me which one was which. Remind you which one was which. I don't Tiny know. Tiny Warner Tiny, well, they were both. They were both Warner Brothers, and they were both. Um, you could say directly off the back of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because they were both produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh-huh. Tiny Toon Adventures featured uh, the stars of Acme University, which is like a a school for cartoon characters, and the characters were like miniature versions 
although they bore little relation to the elder uh, versions. They're, they're, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the little Daffy yeah. Duck-esque or yeah. characters. So you'd have Plucky Duck instead of Daffy Duck. Right, He'd right. be like a green guy in a vest. Uh, it's kind of like a Muppet Babies approach. Yes, but, absolutely. Yeah, okay. but without without them actually being the actual characters. Right. So Elmira, like to get a female Elmer Fudd who uh, who loves her animals so hot. much and wants to uh, <laughs> so just keep them in a cage. It was uh, it was great. It was a, mm-hmm. it was a it was a great show to watch as, as kids. And then obviously you had the the Animaniacs, which, which was a bit more original. I would say we had um, Yakko, Wacko, and Dot. The uh, the black and white sort of like rubber hose looking characters. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah they've sort of borrowed quite a lot from Fleischer and the early Disney mm-hmm. Disney work, uh, and they were locked away in the in the water tower at, at, at Warner Brothers and where they lived and where they occasionally escaped to wreak havoc. So as well as the main characters, uh, you had Pinky and the Brain, which spawned its own series, and uh, I think it's probably the most. I like uh, them. Yeah, the biggest lasting legacy, I would say, Pinky and the Brain. You had Slappy Squirrel. Uh, you had the good feathers, some sort of gangster talking pigeons. Uh, Rita and the Runt, Buttons and Mindy. You, you, had, you had quite a few. An uh, ensemble. An cast. ensemble cast. Yeah. Of, of misrule and merry times to be had by all. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, Pinky and the Brain. That was the one where the two mice, right, and the one of them is basically Orson Welles. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I like that guy. It was Maurice Lamarche. Wasn't Maurice Lamarche. Yeah. His Orson Welles was was very funny. Did you ever see a show called The Critic? I haven't seen the critic. Yet. Oh, you got to watch that. It's, yeah, it's probably the best thing he's he's done. And he, it's he basically it's a show about uh, a film critic. It's from like twenty years ago, and uh, a bunch of people from The Simpsons did this kind of side project. And it was uh, a film critic who uh, is horribly uh, cynical and inept in life and everything. And it's played by John Lovitz. And uh, I have seen it. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, I have seen it. And Maurice LaMarche basically played a bunch of characters and he would play all the celebrities or versions of actors, people who are obviously meant to be based on actors and classical actors. He would actually play Orson Welles from time to time on The Critic. And it's probably my favourite thing ever in in animation (laughs) is uh, him doing Orson Welles. Because he's very very famous. And I think this actually contributed to the the brain because I think that I do remember a scene that was a takeoff of this where there are these very sort of famous uh, Orson Welles recordings like outtakes from him doing recordings. When he was doing the piece for yeah, the yeah, bird's yeah. eye, that's a fantastic. I love that record. I mean, it's just, it just sounds like the biggest in the world, doesn't it? Yeah. it just <laughs> we know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. No, you don't really mean every July. But that's a that's bad copy. It's in July. Of course it's every July. Too much directing around here. I think they would channel that side of Orson Welles into, you know, characters like the Brain, and they would do these, like, in the critic, they would have these scenes of him, you know, doing all these, like, pea commercials and fish stick commercials and stuff like that. Rosebud. Yes, rosebud frozen peas, full of country goodness and green penis. Wait, that's terrible. I quit. But it's Orson Welles, the massive obese version of Orson Welles in, like, the later years of his life, maybe walking away from the from the... You know, the set after getting angry. Just a handful for the road. Oh, what luck. There's a French fry stuck in my beard. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were talking about, there's a Mel Brooks film called The Critic as well. Right. And it's an animation, and it's really taking the mickey out of um, film festivals and sort of Norman McLaren-y, expressive shapes 
jazzy shapes on the screen and it's just this old Jewish guy who comes and sits in the cinema and he's and you hear his voice over the, the film people going shh shh and he's just saying what's this what's going on here what's this and he just doesn't understand it's really funny really funny Bill Clinton did a similar one uh, it was called Spiral and it was just like shapes um, and you hear the audience like getting restless as like it's sort of recorded onto the onto the soundtrack of yeah. like you know, the audience throwing stuff at the screen and eventually trying to assassinate the shapes. Yeah. The shapes are just like we're just trying to entertain. <laughs> Breaking the fourth wall. Anyway, back to traditional cartoons or, or for the young folk. Were these shows quite important? I guess in terms of the the landscape of kids' TV culture. Because well, you had the dark end of things, like, you know, the Ren and Stimpies and the legitimizing cartoons for adults with stuff like The Simpsons. And then, you know, for the teenage market, stuff like Beavis and Butthead. But was this like a new sensibility for, like, children's programming, the stuff that the Warner Brothers were doing? Yeah, I think it had a genuine place. I mean, I certainly enjoyed them as a kid. And it was a good bridge between the, the past shows with starring Bugs Bunny and mm-hmm. uh, Sylvester and Tweety and stuff to sort of link them into it without it being as horrendous as Lunatics the uh, the, the, the oh, futuristic yeah, yeah, yeah. sci-fi thing, you know, it was it was a um, a respectful uh, update, or you know, without being so much being an update. Yeah, I guess it's kind of yeah that sort of era's version of of taking those characters and contemporizing them as we've bemoaned in the past. I don't know, maybe there was sort of like criticism at the time from you know geeks like us <laughs> who were that they were that age at the time. Yeah, it did seem enough of a separate entity. Because I think otherwise I probably would have tried to be more of a fan of it as a kid. Because it wasn't Looney Tunes, Looney Tunes, mm-hmm. I guess I didn't really engage with it as much. I definitely, if I was going to sort of pick one, it would be the Animaniacs, just because I remember Pinky and the Brain. That's what kind of stuck in my head. Yeah. And it was a new property, creating something you know from scratch, rather than reinterpreting an old one or adding a new layer to an old one. Hmm. It's fine to keep the past the past, because as long as it's part of the sort of public consciousness it's it's never really the past it's always going to be there and the stuff that w- was good will be remembered that's the the wonderful nature of time is that i think most people nowadays apart from the people like us who were incensed by it don't know what the hell lunatics was mm-hmm. you know and i just i have a very sort of like clear memory of, of that bugging me so that's you know but you know another 10 years from now I'll, I'll probably struggle to remember it you know um but I will always remember, you know, the the good versions of those characters. Respectful, I think, is the main word there. Because yeah. obviously, when you got somebody like Steven Spielberg, who spent an awful lot of time on uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, getting to know these characters, I would suppose, on a on a, a more intimate level for a director. Yeah. And obviously, he wishes to be respectful. He's not going to turn around and say what's going to sell a lunchbox. He's going to turn around and say what's going to. And of course, as in Roger Rabbit, they had like actual cartoon characters they had the sort of made up cartoon uh, main cast that was made up for the film but then you'd have like you know Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and yeah. Mickey Mouse in the same scene you know and but they'd all be yeah quite true to the, the way the characters were and it, it, it did work very well you know because yeah he was paying attention to what those personalities were yeah and that's, I guess what, that's what Tiny Toons is it's their it's yeah. their personalities so Plucky Duck is uh it's even voiced by the same guy that now voices um, Daffy Duck, uh-huh. uh, Joe Alaski. Right. Um, well, unless Mel Blanc comes back from the grave with another recording, as we heard mm-hmm. from our interview with uh, Matt O'Callaghan. And he's another guy who, who yeah, listening to the interview, and, and uh, this was on the Annecy special, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and seeing the films you know, that he's done, he's a, you know, he's a guy who's trying very, very hard to be as respectful as he can be, you know, and he's, and you see that, I think, in the timing, and I think in the, 
in the way the cat you know there are going to be changes to make it work in cg and there are going to be changes to make it work with a contemporary young audience but generally speaking like i i saw like stills from those you know first like roadrunner cg shorts and my immediate impulse was oh no you know they're gonna they're gonna wreck this and my, what i was expecting was actually what they did with the the tv version mm-hmm. they were going to completely change the characters but those obviously were done with you know the old you know theatrical shorts in mind and and the impulse was to you know preserve and retain what the soul of those were and you can never do that completely but i think that you, someone's trying just makes it more endearing automatically rather than okay let's just take this character and just completely spin it around and turn it on its head and and or just slap a completely different premise onto it increase its marketability slightly by giving it some you know brand familiarity Hmm. and take it from being you know sort of a generic show or a generic sitcom or a generic superhero show to something that's tied into this this well-established universe and uh, that actually that kind of stinks it's, it's, it, it reeks of laziness and uh, uh, artificial uh, heart artificial soul you know and blacklisted <laughs> yeah these are the opinions and views of Ben Mitchell don't uh, don't give Steve a hard time <laughs> yeah I don't know this man so do you want to reveal the the winner Ben sure well we have the results in front of us and uh, whoo, wow everyone likes the Animaniacs it's, yeah. it's uh, 81 to 19 percent so uh, well that's a landslide so um, for anyone who worked on the Animaniacs is listening you win <laughs> <laughs> Ah, nostalgia. I think it's great, isn't it? That uh, anime, it's obviously its originality and, and maybe quite a lot of help from Pinky in the Brain. Um, yeah. Move, nudge that above uh, above Tiny Toons. So, yeah, yeah. And if you voted for Tiny Toons, you should be ashamed of yourselves. You You're on the losing people. team. There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence within and emphasize it. Get me a jury and show me how you can say in July and I'll make cheese for you. So it's been a while, but we did have a competition a couple of podcasts ago. We can now finally reveal the winner. After, of, uh, after a long, you know, long wait. We've decided which one of you is, is worthy enough. We like to keep you in suspense. Pretty fabulous prizes. Mm-hmm. Some great books uh, by Nancy Beeman, a, a guest from a, a couple of podcasts ago. And so the winner of Nancy Beeman's books, Prepare to Board from Focal Press and Animated Performance from AVA Academia, is Jeff Malcolmson. And we'll be in touch shortly to get those over to you. Congratulations, sir. So I hear you've been playing with puppets recently at McKinnon and Saunders. I certainly have. I've been very, very lucky. Uh, I went up to Manchester to see an old podcast guest, Barry Purvis, working on his latest production, which is uh, a kid's show oh, called uh, Toby's Travelling Circus, uh, working on it with McKinnon and Saunders. McKinnon and Saunders, to the people who do not know who they are, these are master puppet makers. I don't mm. really think you could really think of a, of a better place to make puppets. In recent years, they've also um, turned their hand to actually animating as well, uh, with fantastic results. So they have a crew now to sort of do their own puppets then? Yes, yeah, the puppets are still being created for films such as uh, the upcoming Frankenweenie. Mm-hmm. They did Fantastic Mr. Fox, they made, they made the puppets for that. Did uh, they animate on that, or no, did they? Okay. No, no. Uh, they animate basically for kids' series and telly stuff, which you know they made the puppets for Corpse Bride, and these puppets 
when you take a close look at them, they are incredible. Yeah. The level of detail and the, they're like robots. The complexity of the armatures is stunning, but oh. you can get such subtle movements out of them. It's and and they are called the Rolls Royce of puppets. They really they really mm. are. They're, what are they made of? What's the main material? Uh, lollipop sticks, uh, uh -huh. plasticine, and Celtic. pipe cleaners. Blue tack. Yeah, blue tack. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're silicon. Uh, metal from the future I don't know no. just really complex stuff yeah so they kind of rig them up like it's sort of bendable then it's yeah of like yeah the, the puppets in in Corpse Bride they were controlled by uh, allen keys in the back of the head and they would twist uh -huh. them to make the lips move make the eyes move and uh -huh. make the face and if you look at the Corpse Bride again the film it's so subtle mm. the, the the way the the face moves it's it's not a replacement you can tell it's not a replacement uh, like Pirates or the upcoming Paranorman. Did they do replacements in Nightmare? Uh, yes, they yeah. did. They did on... on, on that, that does have a very d distinct look, like a distinctly sort of different look, even mm. though like the the, I the heads will be like identical except for like one little thing. There's just something about the, the quality of movement that changes, I think. I think like to be able to, to actually contort a face the way like musculature does. I guess it actually probably contributes to the process of, of animating in stop motion being more organic like that. Because hmm. every stop motion animator I've talked to, you know, including we talked to Robert Morgan uh, in the last podcast, and but they talk and Barry Purvis, of course, but they talk about like how it becomes a communication with the puppets, and you kind of use instinct. And if you're having to take off your puppet's head and replace it, mm -hmm. that might break that spell a bit. But yeah. If you're actually like moving the face like physically each time that it, it probably helps just sort of keep things you know natural when I, I i've never touched a puppet so i'm completely talking out of my ass right now but uh i'm guessing i'm maybe some stop motion animators can can email me and tell me if i'm making any sense when you do watch something like cops bride it is pretty mesmerizing just mm -hmm. seeing this this thing move rather than seeing uh, replacements, you know, so mm -hmm. it's is great. But yeah, that's that's just a you know a testament to how fantastic McKinnon and Saunders are at, at creating puppets, and they have been for years. Hitting the scene years ago with uh, Paul Berry's uh, Sandman. Paul Berry is sadly no longer with us, mm -hmm. uh, but the style of that film um, and the and the complexity of the puppets obviously led to a, a healthy career for the puppet makers McKinnon and Saunders, and the the look of the film. Uh, borrowing from a sort of expressionism, like German expressionism, translated very well for, for films like Nightmare Before Christmas and the upcoming Frankenweenie and Corpse Bride and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously proved popular. Yeah, yeah. Frankenweenie is like a, it's another Tim Burton as well, right? It is, yeah. And it's, wasn't there like, a, you did like a short version and is that something to do with That's that? That's right, or is yeah. It? yeah. Yeah, it's basically his, his extended, the short film that he made with Disney years ago. Mm-hmm. That was an animation, though, was it? That, that was, was like, that yeah. was, yeah. It was? Oh, no, it wasn't, no. No, no sorry, I'm thinking of Vincent. Vincent was animated, uh, yeah. Frank and Weenie. I think it was on the Nightmare DVD. I know I've seen both of them somewhere. But, yeah, I'm pretty sure the, the dog one was, was live action. So, yeah, be interesting to see that one. I like. I do, I do. just like that look, you know. It yeah, doesn't... Yeah, yeah. I have a weird thing with nostalgia, like, of, of things coming back. I don't need things to be good. I just quite like the look of them, if that mm. makes any sense. Um, but I'm sure it will be good anyway. So McKinnon and Saunders have taken a step, uh, like I say, recently into into producing kids uh, animations and the, the project that we're talking about. Uh, Toby's Travelling Circus, produced uh, in Manchester, which is fantastic. That actually, you know, these productions are now they're coming back to the UK. 
the, the work isn't being done overseas and, no. and shipped in and dubbed or however however it has been done in the past so there is work in the UK again which is smashing I think children's TV has had a bit of an edge as far as keeping stuff within the UK mm. there was a presentation by Ukti um a few months ago in Bristol about like I think because of that attitude of, of animation being for kids you'll get more sort of backing for it or there'll be less threat to it you know like I agree it's positive that you know we've, we've held on to that mm. you know. great stuff so the opposite of what we were talking about earlier on about um, producers not being needed I think when you're creating like McKinnon Saunders uh, when they're creating something then obviously they do need a producer to oversee 52 episodes of a of a kids animated TV series. It's a completely different beast from yeah. from an independent film. Uh, so and a completely different audience. You know. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, a completely different audience. So it's great that we managed to talk to uh, Richard Randolph, the uh, producer and creative director of comics K O M I X, for his take on his role as a producer and how he keeps everything together. Richard Randolph, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Would you be able to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe what projects will recognise you from? Uh, yes. Well, I've always been, um, in this particular industry, uh, an animation producer. Um, and I helped set up uh, Ealing Animation. And we went on to make a series of programmes, supposed to start with mainly educational but after that, with Channel 4, we did Beer and Skittles and a variety of other small five-minute shows for them. And then when I went on my own, we concentrated again on series for TV. And I suppose the first major series that we got was Old Bear Stories, right, uh, which went out on ITV in the early 90s and did extremely well that being the first stop frame model animation that we had made. The previous shows had all basically been 2D animation shows. And I continued making a variety of shows for the BBC with uh, Dr. Otter and uh, Sergeant Stripes, Dr. Otter being stop frame and Sergeant Stripes being 2Ds. We also did the stop frame section for Grizzly Tales for Gruesome Kids and in the mid 2000 we closed the studio dealing animation and I formed a partnership with um, Edward Glauser and, and Andrew Kolbolgin to set up a new media company called Comics Entertainment and we are now working on Toby's Travelling Circus, which is a 52, 10-minute stop-frame model animation show that's being put together up at McKinnon and Saunders in Manchester. I, I went to McKinnon and Saunders the other day. They, the show looks absolutely fantastic. If we sort of talk a little bit about animation, I mean, were you drawn towards animation or did animation find you uh, back in those early days in the 80s? <laughs> I think animation found me. My original partner at uh, Eni Animation was, is now my brother-in-law, Andy Walker, who was one of the first students at the National Film School for Animation and also uh, worked with uh, Pete Lord and Dave Sprotsman at uh, Ardman Animation. But then Andy left and uh, travelled the world 
And when he came back, he asked me, and I have to say I had a general business history at that stage, to help him form uh, an animation company. So I thought this was quite good fun, and so it proved to be. But was it planned in my career? <laughs> the answer is no. But I was very happy to use some of the business skills that I had to help him and the company uh, develop. And when he left towards the end of the 80s, then I took over and uh, fortunately with a number of really close colleagues, um, managed to develop any animation and the shows that I've just talked about. Most people see the, the, the title of producer basically on every single production. Productions don't really get made without a producer. Uh, and as a creative director of comics, could you tell us a little bit about those roles and, and how they practically apply to a project? Yes, when you put together a show, right, you obviously need a certain number of ingredients uh, to make it work. You obviously have to have a good idea, you have to have good designs, and I suppose even before you started, you've got to have some decent uh, understanding of how the characters are going to operate and what sort of stories that you want to tell. So, from a producer's point of view, you start at the very beginning. So, you start with those basic ideas on how uh, the characters are going to interact, what they're going to do, what environment they're going to, the stories are going to be played out in, and all the various different strands that are necessary to, to tell a good story. From there, once you've made that decision, then you can maybe look about what type of animation uh, or special effects that you you want to use. So from the producer's point of view, once that has been put together, then you can start planning the financial and the commissioning side. So obviously there are certain shows that you know more likely to get away with a particular broadcaster or that you're more likely to be able to raise money with. These are all part of the producer's brief. There's no point in having one without the other these days. So therefore, from my point of view, once I've got that sorted, in other words, I've got a broadcaster on board and I've got the finance behind it, then the next thing to, to sort out is the team. And you've got to think of the team of writers, very important, see a script editor, also very important, and then you need a good director, you need a very good line producer, and you need a cracking good team. And once you have that ingredient, then you can start producing a show, which is the fun bit. But the bits that come before, where you're trying to sell the concept and develop the financial structure behind it, are the tough bits. And that takes a lot of time, it takes a heck of a lot of effort, and to a certain extent, you need a little bit of luck as well. I suppose you, you'd have to be as just as creative in your role as a producer as in regards to selecting broadcasters, selecting the right team, uh, as a designer would be in designing characters. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you you know, the design is very important, and I don't think I mentioned the design on the, 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 the last section, but it's really important that you have all the right ingredients, right, to make something that really, as I said, I'll go back to the fact, tells the story you really wanted to tell. And not only that, then captures the audience so that they have a magical time as well. That's what you want. And so therefore it is important to get the right designs, it is important to have the right team, and 
also important, I have to say, that you tell people about it. So it's also important that you promote the show and that you, you know, in this day and age as well, even more importantly, that you can actually sell the show, and not only to uh, the, the home uh, broadcaster, but you need to be able to sell it abroad as well. So there are a number of different things. And when you're looking at the original concept, as I think I said at the beginning, you've got to look at the designs, you've got to look at the, uh, the structure of the show, and you have to look at it in mind of not just being something I want to do, because I like to do lots of things, right, but also something that that is going to work, hopefully, in this country, but also, particularly in the sort of children's genre at the moment, internationally. So, uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about um, Toby's Travelling Circus, which comics have, have uh, created. This has been around with us for quite some time, and uh, it came from a, an old chum of mine, uh, Dave Bonner. We've been discussing this, and as with any idea, things change as you go through the process, and we've had a lot of input from a number of different people over the years too. So a, design, a concept that starts in one place actually moves quite a long way to the final product that you actually produce. You have to be able to, to monitor that as it goes through. Toby ticked a number of boxes for us. There is uh, a lot of activity in it. So there's a lot of performance. There's a lot of fun and humor in it because there's a lot of slapstick with clowns. There's a lot of drama in it because... Um, uh, it's got a lot of acrobatics, and we're up on the trapeze, we're up on the high wire. There are a number of things that I suppose we probably wouldn't have been able to do 10 years ago. But with special effects and with the, uh, the, the use of computers, etc., we can now, you know, uh, 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 do those sort of tricks in inverted commas, and also uh, show something that looks absolutely spectacular. So... We were impressed with the idea, and then you have to take it on. You've got to take it on to a situation where um, you really feel comfortable about it and that you know that it's going to show the way you want to show it. And also, as I said earlier, that um, it has international potential. And the fact is that you know wherever you go in the world, you're going to find circuses, Wherever you go in the world, you're going to find fun fairs. And in Toby's Travelling Circus, we have both the fun fair and the circus because a lot of that is, reflects what actually happens in real life. So the, um, the characters in Toby's Travelling Circus, uh, do you have to select them based around certain pressures in sort of political interests? I mean, how do, you, how do you go about that? So I think, I think it's more... Uh, from our point of view, we wanted to... You want to have two things. You want to have a strong main character. And so, therefore, our seven-year-old, who sort of inherits the circus, you'll have to watch the shows to find out a bit more about that, he runs his circus. So, therefore, he's the one who actually encourages the cast of performers to extend themselves, to come up with new ideas, to solve some of the problems, etc. And then the cast of performers we've taken so that it gives us an opportunity to tell the sort of stories that we want to tell. So we have um, his mum, Dolores.
Harris, great character, super character, that the two of them work together to run the circus and funfair. And, you know, it's really nice. And you contrast that with uh, his toy monkey, a character called Momo, who is the sort of younger sidekick, who is also follows him around. So therefore, it gives us an opportunity to develop Toby as a character and develop that ensemble. And then the clowns are slightly separate, Fredo and Clara, great fun there. We decided that Fredo should speak gobbledygook, which means he's got to mime a lot. This gave us a lot of opportunity for great acting, and I have to say, the animators have done this absolutely superbly, and it's just brilliant as far as I'm concerned. And then we've got two acrobats, Lee and Ling. They're twins, and therefore they're quite sort of strong characters who a lot of the time want to succeed. They want to succeed because they're professionals in one sense, but also that's just the way. Their big catchphrase is practice makes perfect, and that again works out well for us. And we've got a, a strong man, a robot called Thor. So there's a sort of mixture of different types of characters that you can get away in animation. And so from that point of view, we've got an interesting, you know, I hate to use the word, but ensemble of, um, of different performers. Brilliant. Yeah, I would agree with you uh, with regards to the animation. I, I was lucky enough to go down to McKinnon Saunders um, a, a couple of days ago and, and see the rushes and see uh, what um, the director, Barry Purvis, and his, his fantastically uh, talented team have managed to put together. But I suppose as a producer, you have to pick talent very well. Um, I and mean, what made you choose McKinnon and Saunders to sort of facilitate in the creation of the show? I mean, it's obvious to me, like I've said, um, that the talent is there, but... Uh... Well, I suppose there were two things. I've obviously run a studio down here in London, and when I decided uh, that I wasn't going to do that anymore, uh, there was a possibility that we got a show we could set up again. But actually, I'm really pleased that we're producing it in Manchester. McKinnon and Saunders have always had the reputation for their puppets, um, the Rolls-Royce of uh, puppets uh, throughout the world. No two ways about it. And I got to know Chris Bowden really well, and Chris and I, I could tell, we're going to make a good team. And then from there, getting Barry on board worked really, really well. The crew of animators up there who'd been working on uh, Fifi and Rory were top-notch and it's just been a pleasure. We are lucky enough to have people working on the CG side because there's a lot of CG and special effects uh, that have been, been, been done by Flix facilities in Manchester. Again, I've known Leo Cassidy for a long time and it just felt right. So from our point of view, from comics's point of view, we've always been what I call production neutral. So we'll go with the best people to do a particular job. And in this particular instance, uh, McKinnon and Saunders, Chris and Barry were definitely the right crew for us. Excellent. With this show coming out, obviously produced in the UK, which is excellent, uh, and the um, tax incentives uh, introduced, do you think animation will become a little bit more UK-centric? Do you think we're heading towards another another animation boom from a from a producer's point of view? <laughs> the answer is I hope so. I'm, I'm touching wood as we speak, I, and I hope that this is exactly what happens, that actually it gives us the confidence and it gives our investors probably more importantly, the confidence to come in. Because, as I said right at the beginning, the broadcasters are part of the equation, 
but they're not the most important part of the financial equation these days. And so therefore, we have to get outside investors in. And, and part of that tax credit is obviously going to be part of the financial solution. What does the future hold for comics? What sort of um, have you got in production that you can tell us about or tease us about? Right. We have a number of shows. In fact, if you want to go onto the website, which is uh, comics.com, www.comics.com, uh, you'll see a number of different shows there. Several are past the pre-production stage, but we are still awaiting the final green light. And as any producer out there will know, these sometimes take quite some time. But I think I can safely say that there are two or three shows that I'm certain will get away. They will be slightly different. In other words, they won't be stop frame. We'll probably do some more stop frame. But at the moment, with Toby, uh, we've got a recommission from Milkshake. So therefore, that in theory means we're making 104 shows, which is going to take us quite some time. But I'm certain that... Uh, the other shows out there, Wanda and Princess Poppy, will also be produced, you know, in the near future. And we will continue to develop shows. We have a joint venture with Random House where we work together with them to create new um, broadcast stories from some of their large library. And this is proving very successful and I'm certain that we'll be producing another two or three shows in, you know, during 2013. Brilliant. Uh, just uh, just so we're clear, uh, if people are trying to look for comics online, it's K-O-M-I-X-X? Correct, yes. Yeah. Dot com. Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Some formalities out of the way. Um, just a final question, really. An awful lot of uh, students in the world of animation wouldn't, I don't think they'd really consider becoming a producer. I think they're more likely wish to work for Disney and in some sort of character animation capacity uh, or for Aardman in a similar respect. Uh, but if somebody did want to become a producer, if you could you know, travel back in time and, and give yourself advice, what, you know, what, how would you start? Well, I don't know. I could make a flippant remark. But actually, on the serious side, I think what you have to do is understand the detail of what's going on. I'd, I think you've got to understand all the various parameters. So, unfortunately, that includes finance. So there is the creative side, which is great fun, but there is also the costing, the pricing, and the production schedule. All of those things are absolutely critical. And I think what you have to do is, as usual with anything, you've got to look at the foundation. So you've got to look at how the animation is produced uh, and, and work in that sort of area and then hopefully get on and, and become an assistant producer working with you know, one of the other people out there that's actually producing shows. And through that, then get on to produce your own show. Um, it, it does take a bit of learning. Um, there's no two ways about it. It's, uh, it was a very steep learning curve for me, I can tell you, and I think it is for most people. Because although everyone thinks with animation, because we're not shooting outdoors, um, things can't go wrong, uh, I can tell you, equipment can go wrong, the puppets can go wrong, um, all sorts of things can go wrong. And so therefore, you have to have an understanding of, of where... The pinch points are where the pressure points are and how you can overcome some of those 
difficulties, let's put it that way, and to get to where you want to get to, which is to get the best team around you, producing the best quality stuff. Um, and so, as a student, it is difficult, but I'm afraid you... It's the same with everything. You've got to start at the bottom and hope that you can come in and, and gradually get to learn some of the intricacies of actually making a really good animation show. Excellent. Well, Richard Randolph, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. It's a pleasure, Steve. That was Richard Randolph, producer of the new show Toby's Travelling Circus. Something to, uh, to plonk the young'uns in front of when they're bothering you. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great trip up there. Fantastic to see all the animators working on it. And it does look like a great show. Do you see any footage from it? Or? I did, yeah. I sat in the rushes, which was which uh-huh. was great. So, the, Is it one of those like kids' shows that adults can sit through? Um, well, from an animation point of view, I enjoy watching the animation. There's, the, right. Because it's based in a circus, there's a lot of slapstick. Mm-hmm. So I've seen the clowns walking tight ropes and things like that. And the characters seem quite fun and bright and breezy and uh, bold as well. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good energy behind this project. Good. Did you get to stick your hand up any of the puppets? <laughs> Are they not those kind of puppets? Not without buying him a drink. So as well as being a rather rambly podcast, we are also a website, which is where... Rather rambly website. Rather rambly website as well, yes. Squiggly.co.uk. It is S-K-W-I-G-L-Y. Just to complicate things. It's, yeah. it's a reward. Keep you on your toes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what have we got in the last month? Uh, well, we have the write-up from the John Kay interview uh, by uh, the man sat next to me here, Mr. Ben Mitchell. Some interesting insights from both parts of the interview and also some more overall career backstory, some lovely visuals, some unbroadcast red and stimpy animatic footage he provided, which is awesome. Well, well to- worth a look. Yeah, quite. Also, if you're interested in the, the industry, we got two reports from a children's media conference which took place in Sheffield. And for the fellow Bristolians, don't forget today is the beginning of Bristol Encounters, our local film festival. I'll be covering their animation strand, Animated Encounters. Over at the Arnold Feeney this week, we're looking to do a podcast special on it in the vein of our recent Annecy special. So uh, look out for that in the near future. In the meantime, if you could make it there for any of the events themselves, it's usually a strong showcase of new work, especially in recent years. They've separated the animation from the live action. It's a lot more consistent and always a nice vibe over there. So worth checking out. Well, that's it for another Squiggly podcast. Don't forget, guys, we are on iTunes now, so uh, we would be incredibly grateful if you could go online and spread the squiggly news and maybe write a little review, leave us some stars. We get some brilliant feedback from Twitter and Facebook, and we are incredibly grateful because, obviously, the squiggly podcast wouldn't be anything without the audience. It would just be two guys talking into an empty room, and that's just sad. So please spread the word, rate it, review it, force it upon people. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're at podcast at squiggly.co.uk send all uh, love letters and hate mail that way you can also catch us on twitter which is at squiggly we're also on facebook as well i'm sure if you search squiggly online animation magazine you'll find us there we'd like to thank the guests of this month's podcast thanks again to john crease for lucy for the second part of his interview uh his website is johnkstuff.blogspot.com keep your eyes skinned in the future for his new film cans without labels now officially funded so it should be underway quite soon we'd like to thank neil boyle the animator director 
of The Last Belt. And Richard Randolph from Comics, the McKinnon and Saunders produced Toby's Traveling Circus. And the show which just started this past weekend you can catch on Saturdays at about 10 past 9 on Channel 5's Milkshake. This podcast has been presented by myself, Steve Henderson. You can catch me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. And you can catch me on Twitter as well at Ben L. Mitchell. Also my website, benmitchellblog.blogspot.com. My book is throatbook.com. My film, The Naughty List, will be on TV in Spain again on Canal Plus Extra HD Sunday the 7th of October at about 10 past 6 in the a.m. Spanish time. So if any of you Spaniards have a particularly extensive night out beforehand, you might be able to catch it just before you pass out. The same film will also be screening at the 10th Mumia Festival in Belo Horizonte in Brazil. There's more info on that at mumiainternational.blogspot.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Ben Mitchell. The music was by Wesley Allard. Don't forget to visit squiggly.co.uk for more animation, news, reviews and interviews. Until the next Squiggly podcast, get back to work!